Coming off. Woo! No, I didn't have mine. Uh, episode 123. I concur. The old one, two, three. In our last episode, Ray, we, yes. we were talking about Father Charles Coglin, the Coughlin. radical Catholic priest, the yeah. radio priest who hated communism because <laughs> they were atheists and hated capitalists because they weren't communists. <laughs> Hated FDR, hated the Jews. Right. Only the bad Jews, though. He liked the good Jews. Good Jews. Didn't really explain what a good Jew was, but he liked them. He never met one. Listen, I've never met a good Jew, but if I ever did, I I would like them. Oh, yeah. Quite sure of that. Shake their hand. Hmm. Yeah. Reach around. But it never happened. But as we talked about in the last. Talked in the last episode, uh, it all kind of fell in a heap. Uh, yeah. when he got shut down by the U.S. government. They said, look, freedom of speech, yada, 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 but nah, nah. Not on my watch. Yeah. 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 Freedom of speech as long as, see, what you didn't read is the fine print. We said freedom of speech look as the long as. Right, right. As long, yeah. <laughs> Always look at the bottom. That's my rule in life. Uh I start at the bottom and work my way up, but you know that. Yeah, no. I do. You don't get you don't get very far because you can't reach much beyond that. It's, I do the best uh, I can with what yeah, I got. It's not much. It's not good. Enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, you didn't read the fine print, which was freedom of speech as long as the speech falls within the acceptable limits right. of. Speech yeah. in this country. Start saying shit that we don't like, no freedom of speech. Yeah. Oh, sure, you can say it. We just won't let you say it to anybody outside of your immediate circle. Right. Can't use the postal service. Can't broadcast on the airwaves. No, right. but you can say it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, freedom of speech. You well, just can't tell anyone what right. your speech Plus is. Plus, we'll contact your... Plus, we'll contact your supervisors because uh, Attorney General Biddle did get in touch with the bishop or whoever it was. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they put pressure on him and got him to shut him down. So there's – there's like Assange is finding out, there's many different ways for a government or any kind of large organization to come after you if they've got the resources to do it. And the American government did. But – I said that this episode, we're going to start to talk about the Christian wave of anti-communism that came next. Yes. Now, a few episodes ago, we talked about how in the 1930s, the country's capitalists, the industrialists, mm-hmm. the business leaders, Bidney. were un- under a lot of pressure. Right. They um, were seen to be the cause of a lot of the country's socioeconomic ills. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they had squandered all of the good times in the 20s and just led to a massive bubble, which then crashed and fucked everybody up the ass. (laughs) Except the rich people. Rich people were doing okay, most of them. They they had lube. Yeah. I don't remember. 
I don't remember FDR having to cut back no. on his uh, gin and tonics no, or no. his uh, get rid of his house and Hyde Park. He was good. He was doing okay. He was doing okay. Yeah. Rich people were doing just fine, thank you very much. But yeah. the poor people were fucked and they blamed the rich people and American businesses for that. Yeah. So the FDR tried to dampen that a little bit with the New Deal, but the nation's industrialists didn't like that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the FDR used to say, listen, I'm, I'm their best hope. I'm their yeah. last best hope. If it wasn't for me, people would be coming at it with pitchforks. These ungrateful motherfuckers don't appreciate <laughs> everything I'm doing for them. Right. But and, that's, yeah. that's kind of how it is with uh, unbridled capitalism. They just want it all, motherfucker. Yeah, it's never enough. Yeah, and so the business owners, like we said previously, during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s are going to try to clean up their their image. And I think we said this before, 1934, the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM, was controlled by a new generation of conservative industrialists, and they had a plan to serve the purposes of business salvation. They were going to tell their story in a way that had it not been done before and try to get the people to understand and hopefully support and back them that they weren't the problem. If anything, they were the solution. People would say, man, I just got back from Nam. Really? You see some shit there? Oh. No, it was just just a big conference. Big conference. Very lovely. It was fine, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good bagels. Right. Yeah, just a lot of of rich white guys. I mean, what's not to like? (laughs) Um, By the way, I'm looking up at my wall at the Our Augustus poster, you and me standing behind Augustus in the Senate. Yeah. And I, I just remembered, I had a dream last night that I was out somewhere. Right. And it was in a foreign country. I was in a foreign country. And I saw a guy that had that poster <laughs> on the inside of his jacket lining. Like he opened up his jacket Badass. and that was on the inside of it. I want that. And I was in the middle of a conversation with someone. I was like, oh, holy shit, that's us. <laughs> and I ran over to the guy and I said, hey, look, that's me. I'm like pointing at the picture and pointing at me. That's me. That's me. And he was like, oh, my God. And we did selfies and. I went back to my conversation and said, sorry, where were we? You know what that reminds me of? When we signed those pants in North Carolina. Those outrageous. Oh, the pants. pants. Yeah. Yeah. So funny. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Someone someone yeah. brought a print a uh, pants with that print on it and we, we signed it. Anyway, so we, we yeah. I, I digress. I apologize. Sniffed them and we signed it. <laughs> That's true. Um yeah, so at the Waldorf Astoria in December of 1940, the NAM president, H.W. Prentice, mm-hmm. he was the head of the Armstrong Cork Company. Right. Now, uh, not Coca-Cola. My, gra- my father, a Scotsman, right. famous story. Don't know, I've probably told you this, but... We're at, we're at a restaurant one night uh, having dinner in Bundaberg and uh, guy says, mm-hmm. uh, waiter says to my dad, would you like something to drink? My dad says, I'll have a cork. <laughs> the guy goes, just a cork? No, but you want something to drink? <laughs> yeah, I want something to drink. I'll have a cork. The guy goes, what? Uh, what are you going to do with the cork? You want the rest of the bottle? Yeah. Yeah, you want a whole bottle? Throw you want a corked bottle? Yeah. Hey, I don't want a <laughs> bottle. I just want a cork. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to get you to write that down. 
Yeah. We were all in her fucking hysterics. <laughs> a Coca-Cola! What's oh. wrong with you, you idiot? You're deaf or something? <laughs> oh, poor guy. Look, I just work here. Do you want something to drink or not? Come on. Come here. Come me some slack. Fucking Aussies. Oh. Yeah, the cork, the Armstrong Cork Company was based in yeah. Pittsburgh, mm. Pennsylvania. Very famous. They used to make corks. Yeah, he was the cork king. I do. It's known as the cork king. I am the cork king, the king of cork. <laughs> I got the biggest cork you ever seen. <laughs> look at this thing. I can plug up anything with it. Oh, look at my cork. Oh, look at my cork. <laughs> he wasn't Scottish, but he used to just do that accent just because it was fun. People go, you're not even Scottish, Harry. Doesn't go, matter. Go, the new lassie. <laughs> Knock uh, you down with my cork. Oh, it's over three. <laughs> now- <laughs> Hold on, back to Prentice. Yes, so 18 ahead. months earlier. Uh, yes. Prentice, the president of the National Association of Manufacturers, had electrified the right. business world with a speech to Jazz the US hands. Chamber of Commerce. Right. Where he called for the recruitment of religion to be used in the public relations war against the New Deal. Yeah, fight fire with fire. Economic facts are important, he said, but they will never check the virus of collective. The only antidote is a revival of American patriotism with religious faith. Excuse me, Professor, you can't see it, but I got my hands up. I'm in a bread line, a dole line for five hours. I can't work. We've been kicked out. We're living in a tent in a park somewhere. And you want me to worry about patriotism and religious faith. Who are you helping? Damn straight. <laughs> I'm sorry, please continue. Uh, well, this this was hugely popular. People chanted. They went crazy. Right. Uh, didn't exactly know how to achieve it, yeah. but it made him very popular. But he had sort of, he'd, he'd sort of set the direction. We need to get religion involved in this because that's the only thing Absolutely. Americans will really listen to without switching their brain on. If we tell them... Hey, listen, uh, love us because we're rich and just shut up and work for us <laughs> for free and buy what we tell you to buy. They're not going to listen. But if we say Jesus says, then fucking it's all on, man. They'll do whatever you tell them if you say Jesus says. By the way, uh, Prentice yeah. is outside of this, Prentice is famous for coming up with something called the cult of competency. Or mm. it's known as the Prentice Cycle in okay. uh, management circles. Here, it's popular self-government ultimately degenerates disintegrating forces from within. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back to bondage once more. Uh, Was that a general observation on his part, or is he tying that to the New Deal or to FDR's government? Yeah, a bit of both. Okay. 
He first came up with it in uh, 1943, and then in 1946, he wrote a book where he changed it slightly. He added a couple of stages. From Mm. bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to freedom, from freedom to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to fear, from fear to dependency, and from dependency back to bondage once more. Now, with his speech, he hits upon something, and I'm not sure if he truly appreciated, but basically his idea is to fight fire with fire, like you said, to use religion to fight the New Deal. After all, and we said this on a previous episode, FDR, in his speech, was always using religious imagery or undertones or phrases in his speech, and he was brilliant at it. They're like, we have to do the same thing, and for whatever reason, that just clicked. And like you said, everybody was excited about it. They're like, okay, now we have a plan to use all of our resources. Let's go after this. But here's the thing that confused me. When he gives his speech in December, I think it's December of 1940 at the Waldorf Astoria, it's covered by ABC and CBS radio. But he's basically giving away the game plan. I mean, he's not like rubbing his hands like an evil genius and say, let's lie and let's use religion. But he is pretty much giving away the plan. But I guess people don't remember that he says this, except for the industrialists remember this, because they're like, that's a great fucking idea. We need to get behind this guy and we need to get behind his plan. Yeah, people don't pay attention, and they they have the memories of goldfish. But I'm I'm stuck on this <laughs> Prentice cycle, from bondage to spiritual Sorry, faith. Uh, I would argue it's from bondage to desperation, to from spiritual desperation faith. to right. courage. Ah, okay. From courage to freedom, from freedom to abundance. Yeah, but okay. So take, um. Like if you look at the American Revolution, just take that as one example, or the communist revolution, the Cuban sorry revolution, or the mm-hmm. Russian Revolution. What led to their freedom wasn't spiritual faith. The American, uh, the early Americans had plenty of spiritual faith. What right. led to their revolution was, well, we don't want to pay taxes, <laughs> basically, <laughs> but it was it was frustration, it was anger, right? Not. Spiritual faith that led to the courage to have a revolution. Cuban, the Cuban Revolution, Castro and Che and those guys, they were all atheists. Um, the R- Russian Revolution, they were all atheists. So, yeah, it's kind of bullshit. If you, it's one of these things you, you read it the first time, you go, oh, that's fucking deep. But if you think about it for 30 seconds, you go, hey, yeah, hold yeah. on. Yeah. Hey. And in terms about from freedom to abundance, Well, Americans had freedom in the 30s and they were all starving. So where was the fucking abundance there? Uh, Abundance not broadly shared, maybe. Yeah. So anyway, kind of of bullshit. I would have gone, fuck you, Prentice. Fuck you. You don't know what you're fucking talking about. Don't come to me with this snippy little pithy bits of bullshit. Fucking old. Caught bullshit on that. Bullshit filler episode on that, motherfuckers. Yeah, you like that. Don't mess with me. Anyway, exactly. Back to Prentice. Off. Yes. So he gave this yeah. big speech, as you said. Um, all the industrials are like, oh, my God. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. But now what? 
we must give attention to those things more cherished than material wealth and physical security. We must give more attention to intellectual leadership and a strengthening of the spiritual concept that underlies our American way of life. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I will, as soon as I have food on the table and a roof over my head, you rich bastard, and I can take care of my family, but during the Great Depression, not really worried about spiritual concepts that underline my way of life, because my way of life sucks ass right now. But again, they're throwing religion in there again, trying not to get people not to think, but to feel and to follow them. As Napoleon said, religion is a great thing for keeping the masses quiet. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you, if you go back to the beginnings of Christianity, uh, what, what Paul, St. Paul, was basically teaching the, the Gentiles, you know, his, his main audience were the poor people, the downtrodden uh, of of podcasters, you know, greater Roman <laughs> Empire. <laughs> the podcast, the podcasters of the Roman Empire, and it was his message to them. Basically, what the, one of the revolutionary things, and I cover this in the film, one of the revolutionary things that Paul came up with was the, the teaching poor people and oppressed people. Look, it's okay. It's okay that you're poor and oppressed. Don't worry about it. Because the end of the world's going to happen in about six months. <laughs> and when it happens... Boom, um, baby. When it happens, you're going to go to heaven and it's all going to be great. So just Golden don't worry sword. about yeah. how fucked your life is Hang right now. It doesn't matter. It's all going to be over soon anyway. Jesus right. is coming. Um, <laughs> he, he, any minute now, he told me. You know, uh, he tells me these things directly, and, right. and he told me he's going to be here any minute. So it's fine. Everyone relax. Keep yeah. doing what you're doing for now. Uh, end of the world's coming. <clears throat> you lepers, and hold it like, together. Oh, right. Hold it together. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it, was, it was building on what the Jews have been told for centuries. The Jewish prophets and Jewish leaders have been telling the Jews for centuries, okay, Yes, your life's terrible, but don't worry about it because God is going to send a Messiah who's going to destroy our enemies, crush our enemies, (laughs) and he's going to be here any minute now. Yeah. Uh, Pretty sure that he keeps telling us he's going to send someone, so just be patient. It's going to happen any minute now. And after centuries and centuries and centuries of not only that not happening, but Jews right. getting their asses kicked on a regular basis, <laughs> Paul's smart enough that he's like, well, fuck, we're in the middle of the Roman Empire. Like, we're never, we're never getting out of this. The Romans, jeez, right. they're going to be here forever. So maybe, maybe we should stop waiting for a great warrior to come and destroy our enemies Maybe right. it's go- it's going to be a what happens when you die thing that we should worry uh, about. Although he did think, but uh, he did think Jesus was Jesus was going to come back as a super powered uh, warrior king and smite I all have their the enemies power. with superpowers. Right? <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, eventually, about a hundred years later, sort of in the early second century, in the Gospel yeah. of John, is when they start to go. Well, look, it's not about Today, stop stop worrying about today. Yeah. Really, it's not about God sending someone to make your life better while you're alive. Because quite honestly, 
he doesn't care that much. What he <laughs> cares about is what happens when you die. He, he, you know, if you if 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 you're being raped and oppressed on a regular basis, quite frankly, <laughs> yeah, you probably it. deserve it. Yeah, you're probably a little bit uppity. <laughs> well, at least now, that's what Augustine will say. A few hundred right. years from now. And you could, we could tell you that, you know, hundreds of years, or I guess a thousand or two years from now, medicine will be such that you could live to be easily a hundred years old. And so if your life sucks, it's going to suck for a very long time. But again, don't worry about that. Don't focus on that. It's what after death that you should be concerned with. That's a great fucking sales pitch. I mean, talking, talk about, talk about talking yourself out of a corner. That's fucking brilliant. (laughs) I have got the greatest product ever, <laughs> ever. You have to spend your whole life to get it. Right. Give me all your money and follow what I and tell you, you for your whole life. And as good and as you, you imagine do- it is, it's even better. Oh, even better. It's the greatest thing it's ever. A- but you're not <gasps> going to get it until after you're dead. I don't have to deliver yeah. it until after you die. And if I you promise. die and I don't deliver, what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? That's Ghostbusters? Right. I don't think so. So, uh, yeah, great sales pitch. Brilliant. Anyway, yeah. back to Nan. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The man who rose to the occasion, heard the call, was mm. James W. Fifield Jr. Right. I guarantee you most people listening to this have never heard of Jimmy, Jimmy Fife, Jimmy the Fife, as uh, I, I always call him. Little Jimmy. But he yeah, is Jimmy. probably one of the most influential Americans of the 20th century. Yeah, forget Cogman, whoever we were talking about last time. This guy, he was a, this guy's a real deal. He's a Congregationalist minister, and he's going to take this idea that Prentice came up with, fine-tune it, expand it, and run with it like crazy. Yeah, far more influential and successful yeah. than Coughlin, but cannot find a single speech of his online. Not a single yeah, speech either. on YouTube, can't find the NAM speech, can't find any Coughlin all over the place. Millions right. and millions of Coughlin things. You can buy from Amazon like CDs of recordings of Coughlin's radio speeches. Oh. Fifield, nothing. But, huh. as we'll see... Probably one of the most influential Americans of the 20th century. Now, who was he? Well, he was a Congregationalist minister. In 1935, he moved from Chicago to Los Angeles to head the first Congregational Church. Now, the previous Mm -hmm. minister of the church had argued against Mm -hmm. the profit motive as being (laughs) unchristian. So he got kicked out. Yeah. And this guy came in. He, in 1935, he also started a political organization called Spiritual Mobilization. Oh, I like that. Now, he and Spiritual Mobilization were Christian libertarians. Mm-hmm. Now, most people today know what a libertarian is. Libertarians basically say, keep your fucking hands <laughs> off my life. Uh, I wish my wife was a libertarian. Anarchists. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I just wish you would say to more people, keep your hands off me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant she was saying that to you. I was like, doesn't she already say that? <laughs> it was the synthesis of libertarianism, which is like, look, the law is allowed to have control over maybe 
assault and theft and fraud and maybe an army, depending on the libertarian you talk to. Right. The very, very, very limited powers of government libertarians want. Everything mm. else, it's a free-for-all. Damn. Anyone can fucking do anything they want. Government has no role in it. Sounds like anarchy. Uh, so Christian libertarianism was a synthesis of, of that plus Christian beliefs regarding God-given inalienable rights and and you know uh, their what the, how they how you should live your life according to Christian principles, right? Um, the, basically, the government is limited to authority around assault, theft, and fraud. Everything else can only be disciplined by the church. Oh no 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 no! Talk about power! Damn. Their, their motto, and this is important, mm. was freedom under God. But the church is telling you what to do or judging you most of the time. Under God. Under God. Yeah. You have freedom They're under God. God. It's a bit, like, a bit like free speech in America. You have free speech as long as your speech falls within these two <laughs> narrowly constrained <laughs> Lines, right? You have freedom under God, complete freedom as long as you do what He says. I mean, it's the same thing. It's right. complete freedom as long as you Tell the line. stay within yeah. what you're allowed to do. Yeah. Now, the organization's founding goal was to arouse the ministers of all denominations in America. Wow, sounds sexy. Yeah, I mean, to check the trends towards pagan statism which would destroy our basic freedom and spiritual ideals. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I just have, I just have to say that, um, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead or, or what order you're going to go into, but just so you can get a sense of this kind of guy, when he does come to the church in California, I think it's like um, $750,000 in debt, something like some massive debt because uh, – the guy before him didn't do a very good job. So, you know, Fifield realizes that God teaches us you have to spend money in order to make money. So he expands the church. He does new drama clubs, new adult education series, radio programs, that kind of stuff. And he's got celebrities joining in with him, that kind of stuff. And yes, even though he and his wife are from a small town, they stay small town, even though the church is starting to turn it around financially. Well, they did buy a mansion before the church got out of debt. They did have a large swimming pool. They did have large rooms to entertain in their mansion on the first three floors of their mansion. They did have a butler. They did have a chauffeur. They did have a cook. And they had other staff. And Fifield was getting paid the equivalent of $250,000 in today's money. But he and his wife stayed humbled, and they focused on the message <laughs> about helping people connect with God. So don't think that he's in but it for apart himself. apart from that. But apart from, apart from that, salt <laughs> of the motherfucking earth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he made out like a fucking bandit. <laughs> so the reason the church was so far in debt, in debt when he took it over was that they'd gone through a massive expansion. This place was huge. Big cathedral, 174. Six-foot-high tower, more than a 100 rooms, auditoriums, a gymnasium. They had about 1,500 members when Fivefield got there and a ton of debt. But then he, as you said, he was a brilliant organiser and he did all of this stuff, uh, basically over the next couple of years, raised their membership from 1,500 to 
4,500 people. Wow. The debt was paid off by 1942. Plus, he bought himself a million-dollar mansion on Wilshire Boulevard. <laughs> um, now, it became the largest congregationalist church in the world, and mm-hmm. it was the church of choice for the Los Angeles elite. Right. Now, a congregationalist church, for people who don't know, basically just a Protestant church in which each congregation runs its own affairs. They're uh, independent. They don't right. have a don't have a, a pope, a, a pope right. telling you what to do. Right. Do your own. Do your own thing. Uh, a reporter at the time said that the membership was pushing for thousand, and its roster read like the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Uh, the the his his congregation had so many wealthy people. Fifield got the nickname the Apostle to Millionaires. <laughs> hey, it's a good gig if you can get it. And as you say, he was being paid a salary of sixteen thousand dollars a year, and adjusted to inflation, that's like a quarter of a million dollars today. And this is in the middle of the Great Depression. God is good, my friend. God is He's good. He's a. He, so this guy is one of the first, if not the first, of the super rich mega preachers. Right. Thank you. In the US. Yeah. This is the guy who figured it out. <laughs> and one of the ways that he figured it out was by aligning himself with rich industrialists. Now, yeah. as a as a minister, he really had no patience for biblical fundamentalists who insisted on a literal reading of the scripture. He used to say the men who chronicled and canonized the Bible were subject to human error and limitation. The text needed to be interpreted. Reading the Bible, he said, was like eating fish, not eating pussy, Uh, (laughs) like eating fish. If your pussy smells like fish, you've got a problem. You need to have a a, a bath. Yeah. He said it was like eating fish. We take the bones out to enjoy the meat. All parts are not uh, of equal value. It's like right. Bible schmeibel. Like we, <laughs> we pick the parts that we like and we ignore the parts that we don't. All that stuff about communism and poverty and rich be- being rich being bad. That's not he never said that. That's a mistake. Right. I don't know how that ended up in there. There's some commie. Some commie wrote that in. Uh, that's oh not God. the real deal. Basically. God wants you to be rich. God, he said, look, Christianity is about individual salvation. Right. Right. Uh, And as such, individuals succeed or fail on their own merit as Christians. And that's how God wants it to be in the world as well. Mm. He doesn't want us to look after each other. No. He wants people to succeed or fail based on, you know, their own merits as individuals. That's why God loves America, because it's individualistic, as is our right. religion. You know, the old Roman religions right. and the Jewish religion was all about the success of the tribe or right. the success of the yeah. nation. You prayed to gods for the success of Rome, not for yourself. You might have had your own family ancestor cults that you could say, please look after us, but... You know, the major state religion in, in the Roman Empire was you were praying for the success and glory of Rome, and the Jews were praying for the success of the right. Jewish people. These were these were communal religions, communist 
religions, if you like. He's like, but, you know, we said, fuck, Jesus came along, <laughs> looked around and went, fuck all this shit, yo. <laughs> it's all about it. everyone for himself. Right. Yeah. Christianity is every man for himself. <laughs> and, and when I say every man for himself, I mean white men, of course, and particularly rich right. white men. That's really, if They're you want to do your own Jefferson Bible and just cut out all the bits that are irrelevant and you brought it down to one single thing, you could sum up all of Jesus' right. teachings in one Pithy little sentence, it's this. Every rich white guy for himself. <laughs> Amen. That's basically Amen. the core of Jesus' teaching. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Yeah. So people yeah. people called him the 13th apostle of big business oh or Saint Paul of the Prosperous, and he was proud of that. Oh. In his writings, he said, Yeah. They call me that, and I'm down. <laughs> I'm down with those nicknames. What, what? Yeah, I got them tattooed on my ass. So it will come as no surprise that when FDR comes along and he says that the Depression was caused by the unfettered capitalists and that the federal government now has to step in and try to regulate this free market, even, even if I'm just going to tweak it and we have to redistribute it, its rewards, Fifield and those who followed him are now alarmed. Something has to be done. Indeed. <clears throat> well, FDR came along before Fifield moved to LA, of course. He didn't move there till 1935. Right. But sure, um, he wasn't a fan of the New Deal. He started publishing Mm-mm. pamphlets where he talked about the grievous sin of the New Deal state, which was wreaking havoc on the professional lives of upstanding <laughs> businessmen with its unwarranted meddling in their affairs. The President of the United States and his administration are responsible for the willful or unconscious destruction of thrift, initiative, industriousness and resourcefulness which have been among our best assets since Pilgrim days. (laughs) I speak of the intimate personal observations I have made of individuals who have lost their ideal, their purpose and their motive through the New Deal's destruction of spiritual rootage. Every Christian should oppose the totalitarian trends of the New Deal. So that's his way of saying that the rich aren't the only ones being hurt. It's also the poor people. It's everybody. We all have to be in this together. Progressive ideas like FDRs and the New Deal, that's not the answer. We need to go back to traditional values. How far back, I hear you ask, to the old fucking gospel, because that exalted individuals, like you were saying, Cam, who should be free spirits under God. So again, let's get back to the way things were. Don't tweak the system. And that's the way God wants it to be. Not me. That's the way God wants it. But where he talks about the intimate and personal observations I have made of individuals who have Mm, lost their purpose mm, and their motive through the New Deal... I think what he's saying is, look, my rich friends are saying to me, well, what's the point of being rich if I can't do whatever the fuck I want? Um, I'm losing all my motivation for (laughs) being able to just send in police and the National Guard with batons to beat my workers into submission. (laughs) What? I don't know. I'm feeling malaise. Yeah. Pastor? What's wrong, my son? 
I, you know, the government won't let me beat my workers into the, submission why, anymore and pay why, them nothing to work 80 hours. Why am weeks. I here? I mean, uh, why honestly, am I here? I've, why, <laughs> what does God want from me, I, Pastor? I thought Please that was tell a, me. Yeah. I'm confused. So, as you can imagine, a little precursor <laughs> to what's coming, he says that churches have the solemn duty to defend those rights against the encroachments of the state. And his first congressional church, his organization, brought this issue into the national politics. So he's 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 talking, he's spreading his message, he's making a ton of cash, but it's not enough. He's going national with this. He truly wants to change things. He truly wants to wind back the clock and take on FDR and the New Deal. Now, what he does differently mm-hmm. to Father Coughlin, and Father Coughlin obviously is around in this time. These right. guys are going at it at the same time. Yeah. But he takes a different approach, Fifield. He's not doing the big public rallies. He doesn't do the radio show, as far as I know. He wasn't into that. He was working behind the scenes yes. to build a network yes. of religious ministers across the country to enlist them in a church-led revolt against FDR and the New Deal. Mm-hmm. By October 1938, he had a network of more than 70,000 ministers through his spiritual mobilization organization. Right. That would basically take his messaging and run with it. Mm -hmm. He sent a, a, a tract out to them in October of 1938 saying, We ministers have special opportunities and special responsibilities in these critical days. Yeah. America's movement toward dictatorship has already eliminated checks and balances in its concentration of powers in our chief executive. Mm. If with Jesus we believe in the sacredness of individual personalities, then our leadership responsibility is very plain. Um, Basically, as I said before, it's their job to protect free market capitalism and uh, get rid of all of these these New Deal reforms and regulations. Right. He said, we may be called unpatriotic and accused of selling out, but so was Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, they used to say, oh, Jesus. Yeah, not a patriot. Oh, my God. Where's your love of Rome, Jesus? And you're just a sellout. Jesus, sell out of fucking our hippie idea. I don't know what he's talking about here. <laughs> How do they accuse Jesus of selling out? Yeah. Jesus, if anything, according to the New Testament, was a rebel. He wasn't a sellout. Right. Yeah. Anyway. And he was, yeah, so- he was very patriotic. He was a Jew. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. No, just that leading, uh, leading conservatives who were with Fifield, uh, yeah, they wanted the clergy to help in their fight against the New Deal. And like you said, he had the 70,000 ministers to do that. And he says, look, it's our responsibility because the United States, because of FDR, is moving towards a dictatorship. He's already taken away checks and balances. We have to stop this guy before it gets any worse. And we, 
lose our way of life. And I can't remember if we covered this in um, previous episodes, but then Fifield and his his associates do get some good news coming their way, even though they didn't generate it. FDR, during the New Deal, kind of stumbles. He reaches too far. And I think you mentioned this before. There were several sit-down strikes from FDR's own labor allies, uh, workers that um, were able to get their uh, union recognized at General Motors and U.S. Steel, but the businessmen did get sympathy out of that. He does, FDR does try to pack the Supreme Court. That fails. It makes him look like a little dictatorial. And then even though the economy started proving, improving, he did cut back on federal spending, which caused a short but sharp recession in the winter of 1937-1938. So, so FDR is having his own problems, and Fifield and other people that are with him certainly aren't ha- helping FDR during his harder times because they're saying this is the guy who is causing all of these horrible things to happen in our country. We have to stop him. We have to stop the New Deal. We have to go back to the way things were, and of course, all under God. So why do you think all of these preachers around the country were getting on board with the spiritual mobilization uh, network? Well, considering everything we've talked about, when they were preached, when they were approached before, these preachers would be given this slick presentation, and it was obvious that it was coming from big money. But I think um, Fifield and others had the common sense to go, you know what? If FDR keeps this up. It's no longer going to be about God. The federal government is going to be the false idol that people are going to worship. And if that's the case, then you will lose your control, influence over these people. And if you're trying to save their souls to get them in heaven, you won't be able to do that. So I think for the preachers, the clergymen, he made it about them and their needs and and the risk of their way of life is now under attack. I think he made it personal for the clergymen. I think you're right, but wrong about why. I, I think okay. What a, what a, what a, what a clergyman want? They want big congregations, right? And uh, a lot of bums and seats, and a lot of money <laughs> in the coffers. Yes. And that's what this guy was delivering in L.A. Ah, he had okay. tripled the size of his congregation in a couple of years but and was bringing in a ton of money. For himself. And living the life of a rock star. Right. Well, yeah, for himself, of course. For himself and but, his congregation. Like He was living the life of a rock star. I think these clergymen yeah. were looking at him going... I want some of that. Ah, I ah. want lots of lo- all of the rich business leaders in my community to Kissing be part my of my ass. church and giving right, me a right, shit right. ton of money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they were copying what happy to copy what had led to his success. He's basically Ray Kroc. He's right. uh, he, he's building a McDonald's franchise mm-hmm. around about the same time as well. He's like, listen. I, here's my method of, of success. Uh, basically, say the shit that the rich guys want to hear, right. and then they'll give you lots of money. Okay? Boom. It's very simple. Tell you we what. should do that. To make it easier, I'll even write your speeches for you. Uh, <laughs> you just give them. And, right. And, uh, like like you know, Reagan. It's all good. Yeah. 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 So, so basically... Yeah, they, they want a piece of the pie, and he's like, I'm happy to show you how to do it. Here's my pyramid scheme. Let me help you with your pyramid scheme. Well, yes, you're part of my pyramid right, scheme. Right, right. 
Um, and, and all of these preachers around America started to get on board. Now, mm. the ones who didn't, and I'm sure there were ones that rejected it, the ones who didn't went out of business because oh, they didn't get on board with the right. gravy train. The guys who got on yeah. board with the gravy train got rich guys to join up. Rich guys gave them money. With money, they could build bigger churches, flashier churches, yeah. you know, put on better events, better, better parades, right. which attracted more people. Yeah. And the people came from the poor, scabby, no-funding churches. <laughs> All their friends are like, hey, have you heard about this church? We're going, it's great. They've got like... You know, uh, gold. They're giving away gold, man. There's like <laughs> good coconut water in the font. Uh, they're giving Chocolate away fountain. shit. It's yeah. and by the way, our boss goes to this one. So oh. if you want to get in good with the boss, right? Good opportunity to talk to the bosses to you know be seeing him at church on Sunday. So yeah, it it, it worked for fairly base reasons, I think. Anyway, so yeah. Like other enemies of the New Deal, um, he was probably happy when the economy started to implode in 37, 38. But then, of course, the war kicked in, military Keynesianism kicked in, the economy approved again, and he's had to start praying as an isolationist. He had to start praying for Jesus to keep America out of the war. <laughs> right. When Jesus didn't listen, he decided it. he had to turn being in the war to his advantage. Now, he wrote a series of newspaper advertisements, mm -hmm. which he sent out to his network of, at this stage, it was over 100,000 uh, ministers right? around the country Woo! and got them to run this ad in their local papers. And it was to get Christians to sign his official pledge. Okay. Uh, and I've and I looked this up in newspapers.com and I read it. It's uh, basically I rededicate myself to Christianity, to the Lord, yeah. uh, and millions of people signed this pledge. Literally signed it out of the paper and sent it into their oh churches. God. And they, but the pledge stated that they were concerned as a Christian about rising tides of paganism and apostasy. Mm -hmm. Apostasy. I never know how to say that word. Yeah. Uh, as a threat to freedom, and one of the clauses in the pledge was, "I rededicate myself to the ideals of freedom, democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, free enterprise, and freedom of worship." Right. Is that under attack? So he's basically. Well, yes, he feels it is with the New Deal, right. not the freedom of worship, but the he's, he's associating freedom of worship with free enterprise, freedom oh, of assembly, freedom of speech. Right. Basically saying, look, uh, the, the, the socialists, the communists are coming for us in America, FDR and the New Deal are part of that, we need to fight back against it, and associating Christianity because this is a Christian pledge, mm -hmm. with free enterprise. Mm. He's the main guy, in, like, because Father Coughlin was against free enterprise. Right. Which is one of the reasons he got shut down. This guy is pro-free enterprise. They're both anti-communist, mm -hmm. but Fifield is pro-free enterprise and is associating being a good American with being a good Christian, <laughs> with being an anti-communist, and being pro-free enterprise. He's mixing it all together. 
Nice. He's come up with the magic formula. Right. Here. Um, now, so, yeah. Now, the, 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 by 1944, the pledge was saying, recognizing the anti-Christian and anti-American trends towards pagan statism in America, I covenant to oppose them in all my areas of influence. I will use every opportunity to champion basic freedoms of the free pulpit, free speech, free enterprise, free press, and free assembly. Yeah. So he is basically taking a stance that Christianity and anti-communism is goes hand in hand with free enterprise. Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant of him to wrap it all up because if you can give it to the American people as a package deal and they accept it, then, yeah, they can't start to peel away parts that they don't like. It's either all or nothing. I do find it interesting that it's 1944. Um, the uh, New Deal or parts of the New Deal has been around roughly for 10 years. The economy is getting better. Yes, there's a war going on and the government is spending like gangbusters. But I still find it fascinating that he's still fighting this thing roughly 10 years on. And it's it's got to be popular to some degree because if not, FDR wouldn't be elected um, over and over and over again. So I guess is it faith in himself or the uh, or that you never give up or he's got such a large following that he thinks he can ha- he thinks he can turn this around. But ten years on, he thinks he can still go after the New Deal or is it maybe if I don't fight it, maybe to get even worse and will go even further politically left. I, I'm just wondering what he's. What do you think he can hope? What he can accomplish in 1944? Well, yeah, I mean, he's doing the bidding of the industrialists, man. I mean, the industrialists—he's basically part mm. of the propaganda arm of the hard right industrialists right. in America. They're not giving up. Keep they're, they're not. They don't yeah. give a fuck how popular FDR is, or how popular <laughs> the New Deal is, man. Their right. job is to fight back against it. They're still fighting the fight today, motherfucker. That's, true. That's why That's true. whenever the Republicans get in, they start undoing oh, anything God. to do with regulation. Yeah. That's that's the basic the you know, the basic war. Yeah. If you like it in the US and, and it's the same in most western democracies. Mm-hmm. It's the fight between the rich elite who are dead set against any form of regulation to stop them from completely draining the public treasury. Right. Uh, and the people who, and the, and the rich elite who go, who are like, yeah, no, we need a little bit of regulation. Um, mostly to stop my yeah. competitors from getting a foothold. Um, that's, that's basically what politics is about is the, the tension between those two forces. The rich mm-hmm. elite who want no regulation and the rich elite who want a little bit of regulation. That's basically it. That's Democrats <laughs> versus Republicans. What, That's what about the rest of us? Labor versus Liberal in Australia. Yeah. It's the it's the Tories versus Labor Party in the UK. That's what 99% of politics is about, in my opinion. <laughs> Sadly true. Anyway, um, by the time the war ended, the advisory committee for... Mm-hmm. Spiritual mobilization's pledge was, as right. according to one observer, a who's who of the conservative establishment. <laughs> uh, by 1945, it, he had a 24-man uh, advisory committee. It Damn. included three past or present presidents of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 
mm-hmm. a leading Wall Street analyst, a prominent economist at the American Banking Association, the founder of the National Small Businessmen's Association, wow. a US congressman, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, a few notable authors and lecturers, and the presidents of the California Institute of Technology, Stanford University, the University of California, the University of Florida, and Princeton Theological Seminary. He also had a lot of support from Herbert Hoover. Right. uh, Former president. Predecessor to uh, Roosevelt, who hated Roosevelt and hated the New Deal and was doing (laughs) everything in his power to dismantle them. Um, That's quite a list. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, he, it was basically a who's who of, of you know, rich people, right. uh, rich conservative people that were pushing Americans to associate free enterprise with Christianity mm-hmm. and, uh, and anti-communism. Now, by the time uh, sort of the war ended, he was, these publications from Spiritual Mobilization were challenging Roosevelt's claim that Americans cherished four freedoms, freedom of speech, yeah freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Right. They were saying, well, we still have those things, but freedom of enterprise (laughs) has gone. Right. We don't have freedom of enterprise, of of labor, and that's important. We need need a fifth freedom, freedom to do whatever the fuck we want, (laughs) basically. That's the freedom that we need. As businessmen, freedom to tell you to fuck off with your regulations and your unions and just Crack let us get back to nightsticks, nightsticks yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. tanks. That's how we want if to I, run our labor force. If I could throw in, yeah, so, so, so they're u- trying to use his own speeches against them. But, yeah, what about the business concerns? But then Senator Albert Hawks of New Jersey gets involved. And he says, after careful examination of the records during the past 10 years, one can only conclude that there is the objective of the assumption of greater power and control by the government over individual life. If these policies continue, they will lead to state direction and control of all the lives of our citizens. That is the goal of federal planners. planners. That is not the desire of the American people. So now they've got senators in on this saying that he has supposedly studied something and his conclusion is, and your conclusion would be if you read it too, that the New Deal not only has failed, but the government isn't going to keep grabbing powers until they can absolutely control the American people. That's horse shit, but it's coming from a U.S. senator. So how do you not be impressed? So... Yeah. Then in December of 1944, Fifield was invited to speak to NAM at their annual conference. Mm-hmm. They had been looking for a way to tap into religion, and they saw this guy as the guy who's going the to be leading them forwards. Yeah. <laughs> so he stood up in front of a packed hotel at the Wall of Astoria full of industrialists and delivered a passionate speech defending the American system of free enterprise mm-hmm. as being uh, the, the, the Christian way to lead a nation. <laughs> right. He talked about the New Deal's encroachment upon our American freedoms. He talked about the rising costs of government and the multitude of federal agencies attached to the executive branch <laughs> as a menace of autocracy approaching through bureaucracy. <laughs> 
autocracy approaching through bureaucracy. Right. Through bureaucracy is hard to say. Through it is through, through bu- say bureaucracy. Through bureaucracy. Oh my ten god! Times was. No. Thank through you. bureaucracy, through bureaucracy, through bureaucracy, through bureaucracy, through through bureaucracy. Fucking hard. Yeah, no. Not and his audience was stunned. Woo! Now, Woo! over the last decade, as we've said, uh, the, the 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 titans of industry in America had been blamed for the nation's economic woes, right. and here he was saying that they were the saviors yes. of America. You, One journalist who was you. there said. When he had finished, rumors report that the Nam applause could be heard in Hoboken. <laughs> uh, it, 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 they went nuts. They'd taken off their panties, thrown them on the stage. <laughs> Frank Sinatra Ooh, saw this. I want to have your baby. In. Yeah, man, that's where yeah. I want to be. Yeah. yeah. Some banker. I want to have your um, baby. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, as you said before, the, the Nam and we talked about this on an earlier episode. Um, during the depression, the National Association of Manufacturers basically invented modern corporate propaganda, and part of what they did is with their early experiments with propaganda was just try and roll out positive messages about how great they were and what a great job they were doing, and right. people didn't buy it. People saw no. through it. Yeah. And then they tried to enlist religious leaders. Prentice already had this idea, right, years before mm-hmm. Fifield got up. Prentice tried to enlist religious leaders around the country to support free enterprise. And again, they didn't go for it. Yeah. They were like, well, basically, what's in it for me? Yeah. You're just trying to get me to do your, be your propaganda. Be your Fuck you. What's yeah. in it for me? <laughs> but Fifield right. figured it out. What's in it for you is you get lots of money. Yeah. And the priests, the ministers went, oh, oh you're going to pay us, I'm, basically. I'm in. We, we tell the people that free enterprise and Christianity go together, mm-hmm. and then I the rich guys will give us lots of money? Right. Yes, that's yeah. basically what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, well, fucking, why didn't why you, you say s- that years ago? We were wasting time I'm here. In. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. I want a Porsche. Yeah. Daddy got to have a new Porsche. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. Praise Jesus. Everyone's excited here. This guy has worked out the model. Appeal to the self-interest of the the ministers and the (laughs) pastors. That doesn't sound right. Yeah. Um, Look, sell this message. Rich guys will come. They'll give you lots of money. You can build a bigger church. That'll bring in more people. Ah, Your salary will go cycle. up. You're going to be more powerful and influential and wealthy than you've ever. This and is close, this is the model, motherfucker. I've worked it out. Right. Just and closer this to is God. The McDonald's of religion. I've worked out the <laughs> McDonald's of religion. Right. <clears throat> right. Woo! Oh my God. Where do we leave? Yeah, so so when he gives a speech, uh, because Senator Hawks set him up with uh, elite industrialists, they're handing over huge corporate donations, personal checks. Hell, Harvey Firestone himself gave five thousand dollars, which obviously back then was um, was a ton of money. And these rich titans also brought in their friends and other industrialists. So this is a snowballing effect, and everything is just working out wonderfully for the industrialists. And for the priests who are going to be schlepping their message. Exactly. 
Now, we made lots of new friends at NAM that day, our friend <laughs> Fifield. The most important right? was J. Howard Pugh, the president mm-hmm. of the Sun Oil Company, better known today as Sunoco. Uh, you may have heard of Pew Research. We've referred yes. to them a lot in our Bullshit Filter shows. Uh, they mm. are funded by the Pew Charity that he set up. Right. And little known fact, but he also invented the sound that laser guns. Little pew, known pew, fact there, Normie. I wanted you to do it. <laughs> pew, oh, pew. sorry. Let me try that pew. again. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. It came from Howard J. Did not know that. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Howard uh, was a Christian conservative mm-hmm. and during the 1930s had emerged as a voice of conservative values in America. Right. He held prominent positions in organizations like NAM, was a driving force behind the American Liberty League that we talked about a few episodes ago that tried to fight the New Deal and, and sort of got laughed at. Mm-hmm. Right. In a letter to Fifield at the end of 1944, he wrote, The New Deal is in a much stronger position than it has been for the last several years. It is my judgment that within the next two years, America will determine whether our children are to live in a republic or under national socialism. And the <laughs> present administration is definitely committed to the latter course. It's now or never. So this guy, the head of Sunoco, the guy who funded Pew Research and invented the sound that laser guns make, (laughs) thought the Democrats, no, hold on. Yeah, the Democrats under FDR, FDR was still alive, Yeah, were Nazis. Oh, my God. We're going to live under national socialism, he He, thought, within several years. So he's not that smart, but... I mean, but I guess from his point of view, from his point of view, the tweaking of the New Deal is comparable to Nazi Germany. It sounds stupid to us, but we're looking at we're looking at it from a different socioeconomic level. We're looking up. He's looking down at it because he's he's the one percent. So I guess in his perspective, it is the equivalent or it could lead to that. So they have to nip it in the bud. So we're sitting there making jokes about it. But I guess they truly either did believe this or they're just lying to each other. And it's all about just getting everything deregulated. What do you think? Do you think they're sincerely thinking Along these lines? No, I don't think so. I mean, I just think that it's just propaganda. It's fear yeah. propaganda. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think so. It's all about the Benjamins. I mean, yeah. Um, it's basically just, you know, the, the law of the freedom to do whatever the fuck we right. want. That's what they want I like to that. back. I mean, that, that's, that's what they've lived under. I mean, yeah. you know, these guys had built their businesses. They prospered under this with no regulation, being able to do whatever the fuck they want. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should care about what kind of <laughs> shit you're putting in our food. And uh, right. yeah, maybe we should care about how you treat your workers. And they're like, fuck <laughs> you, you communist. Kick them in Get the out nuts. of my way. Yeah, yeah. How dare you, sir? And so now um, Pew is going to now, get involved. Um, yeah. yeah, now Pew, uh, Pew is going to really start t- tipping into his little black book and getting all of his friends to get on board. I also wanted to point out, though, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, 
the self-interests of the religious leaders wasn't just about building big, getting lots of money from their rich friends right. and building bigger churches. They they were genuinely, I think, concerned that a, a rise in communism in America mm-hmm. would mean a rise of atheism in, commun- oh, in, in America. Still self-serving. Uh, communists... T- well, yes, that's their own interest. It's a direct right. threat to religion. Right. Of course, Marxism accused religion of being a tool of oppression, called it the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. um, the opium of the people, and said that you know religion had been giving working classes false hope for 2,000 years, and he was right. As I said, that goes right back to St. Paul Right. Yeah, don't worry. The end of the kind of time is coming. Time to turn. Don't worry about you, how fucked your life is because Jesus is coming. You tell people that, they're like, all right, well, I guess we, there's no point revolting um, right. because uh. Jesus is coming. And people have been believing Jesus is coming ever since. Um, what matters is what happens after you die, not how you're getting fucked up the ass with no Vaseline <laughs> on a daily basis by the rich. That's fine. Just worry it's, about getting to heaven. Try to enjoy it. Yeah. And... In the Marxist-Leninist interpretation of Marxist theory, mostly developed by Uncle Joe, religion was seen as hindering human development. And because of that, a number of Marxist-Leninist governments in the 20th century, including the Soviet Union under Lenin and and the PRC under Mao Zedong, uh, implemented rules introducing state atheism. Right. So the, the American clergy were aware of this and they were like, well, fuck, we don't want people to become atheists. We want more people in our churches, not less, or else <laughs> I'm out of a job. Yeah. We want rich people to give us money. So they were. They had lots of reasons to get on board with this program when it was articulated to them right. in that way. Basically, stop thinking about looking after the poor people Start thinking about looking after yourself. Because quite frankly, <laughs> look at it this way. If you don't look after yourself, there will be no one around to look after the poor people. Oh, that's true. How noble. It's a bit like when political, like the Democrats, they used to do this in the West Wing a lot, where the Democrats would give up on passing a bill like gun laws. right. And their justification will be, well, if we push too hard on this, then we lose power. If we lose power, then we can't do any good. Right. So we have to not do good in order to keep power so we can do a little bit. We can't do 100% of the good things that we want. Right. So we can stay in power and do 10% of the good things that we want. If we lose power, we can't even do the 10% of things, right? It's, that's and, the real like, politic right. justification. And I like being in power. So there's that. No, there's that. Yeah, I like having a job and, yeah, it's good. Get all the chicks. Benefits. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, so the goal, his goal of his spiritual mobilization organization, I know we're running late now, was to have at least one active and strong ministerial representative in every city in the United States, including villages and towns. Yeah. And it worked. Um, he ended up having uh, four. He had four hundred ministers by June nineteen forty four. Then he had eighteen hundred by September nineteen forty five. He's up. He's got hundreds of thousands getting his newsletters. Yeah. 
But these are the people that are signing up to work the program. Yeah. Spread across all 48 states, uh, largely concentrated in industrial regions, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly Protestant, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, and Lutherans, still some Catholic priests and some rabbis. And now here's the thing. This is when they invented the concept of Judeo-Christianity. Oh. Judeo-Christianity didn't exist before this. There's no fucking thing called Judeo-Christianity. It's all bullshit. It was invented. Because after the Holocaust... See, as as we know, before World War II, most Americans hated Jews Mm -hmm. and most Christians in particular hated Jews. They were the people who killed Jesus. Right. They hated them. They tolerated them, but they hated them. Sure. Most, there was, anti-Semitism was rife to varying degrees. I mean, not everyone was like, yeah, throw them in a gas chamber. <laughs> but they were like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like those quotes we read out before from, from Coughlin, people like that. Um, Joe Kennedy's quote, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Eh, look, they're individual. There are some good Jews, but mostly as a race, they're a bunch of cunts. And, you know, I've never met a good Jew. I'm sure they exist, but I've never met one. Like, right. This was common. This was the common view of Christians on Jews. So there was no such thing as Judeo-Christian ethics or Judeo-Christian values. Yeah. As um, Rabbi Eliza, Eli, as the German Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz mm-hmm. put it, Judaism is Judaism because it rejects Christianity, <laughs> and Christianity is Christianity because it rejects Judaism. Right. Never the two shall meet. Jews and Christians had hated each other since Jesus. Right. right? Um, but after the Holocaust, a little bit harder to get away with that. Yeah. So they were like, oh, no, the Jews love the Jews. <laughs> we're all part of the same Judeo-Christian family. Come Makes in. No Let's sense. hug it out. Oxymoron. Give me a hug. Oxymoron. Give me a yeah, yeah, we're all good. So that's when they inv- invented Jeez that. Louise. Now, <clears throat> by February 1947... Fifield had signed 10,000 ministers up as representatives of his program, basically all preaching that Christianity and capitalism go together like cookies and cream. Right. Or Las Vegas and anal lube. (laughs) Pew, Pew Pew, kept soliciting donations from his friends at 158 corporations. He got donations... From the executives of General Motors, Chrysler, Republic Steel, National Steel, International Harvester, Firestone Tire and Rubber, Sun Oil, Gulf Oil, Standard Oil of New Jersey, Colgate, Palmolive, Pete, U.S. Steel, and the National Cash Register Company. He assured colleagues that spiritual mobilization deserved to be at the top of the list when it came time to donate because recent polls indicated that of all of the groups in America... Ministers had more to do with molding public opinion than any right. others. Now, by February of 1948, the progressives do see what's going on, and they do see that there's a battle for the hearts and minds of the clergy because of that very reason. If you can get the clergy on your side, you know, their messages day in and day out, you can start to mold the thinking of the people. So in February of 1948, journalist Carrie McWilliams writes, writes an acidic uh, cover story for The Nation about all of this, and he writes, with the, with the Save Christianity and the Save Western Capitalism chants 
becoming almost indistinguishable, a major battle for the minds of the clergy, particularly those of the Protestant persuasion, is now being waged in America. For the most part, the battle lines are honestly drawn and represent a sharp clash in ideologies, but now and then the reactionary side strives to fudge a bit by backing movements which mask their true character and real sponsors. Such is a movement. Such a movement is spiritual mobilization. So he's calling them on there. And when Fifield is ever asked about where is all of your money coming from? Because by this point, his budget has been doubled twice. The only thing he replies is it's coming from people who are not ministers. But people are starting to recognize what Fifield and his organization are doing. Yeah. In McWilliams' uh, article, mm-hmm. Fifield basically gets presented as a, a charlatan who <laughs> is prostrating himself before the apostles of rugged individualism just for his own fame and fortune. Yeah. And was basically a prostitute. Ooh. Was prostituting himself out to America's business. But leaders. he's a rich one. So Charles... Charles White, the president of the Republic Steel Corporation in Cleveland, sent out a mass email, no, a mass mail, because they didn't have email in those days, a mass mailing to a massive database that they had, defending Fifield as one of my personal friends. Mm. Now, not surprising that he would be a personal friend. Republic Steel had long been leading the corporate resistance to the New Deal's expansion of labor rights. Most dramatically, in the 1937 Memorial Day massacre, when 10 striking workers had been gunned down by policemen outside of one of Republic Steel's factories in Chicago. Damn. He wrote, our company has supported Fifield's crusade generously for some years, and we believe in it deeply, the more so since I have read this irresponsible article and see how the opposition feels about spiritual mobilization. The group ought to have more support. Why don't you send a check at once? I consider this very important and suggest prompt and generous action on your part. And by the way, if you're one of my employees, don't bother turning up for work on Monday unless you can show me the stub of your check where you sent them some money. Thanks very much. Yours in Christ, (laughs) Charlie White. Damn. And his appeal worked. Money started pouring in from corporate donors. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, I think we've run out of time. Uh, in our next episode, we will start to talk about how this, the motto of spiritual mobilization, freedom under God, made its way into the American Pledge of Allegiance and on American currency <laughs> um, oh as a result of all of this. The Christianization of America and the anti-communism of America. Right. How to stop Americans from fighting for a bigger share of the wealth by using Jesus as a <laughs> weapon. That, my friends, is where we leave you today.
military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.